Deloitte estimates that by 2024, which is pretty soon, more than half, I believe, of all funds will be ESG in some way. And Morgan Stanley did a survey showing that 99% of millennials think ESG investing is good or are interested in ESG investing. That's basically everybody. But is ESG's popularity sowing the very seeds of its demise? Welcome to The Early Advantage, where we talk about investing topics that aren't talked about enough. Simple enough, right? Uh, today, we're going to be talking about ESG. Is it fact or crap? And stay tuned, because after this segment, we're going to have an interview with CraneShares ESG portfolio manager Roger Mortimer, and we're going to have an ESG stock screen courtesy of Bloomberg. But back to today's topic, ESG fact or crap? Well, it's certainly popular first. MSCI, an index provider, notes that ESG assets under management have increased 25 times over the past five years. That is a huge number. Deloitte estimates that by 2024, which is pretty soon, more than half, I believe, of all funds will be ESG in some way. And Morgan Stanley did a survey showing that 99% of millennials think ESG investing is good or are interested in ESG investing. That's basically everybody. But is ESG's popularity sowing the very seeds of its demise? Deutsche Bank got in some trouble recently for some alleged greenwashing, allegedly overstating uh, the ESG-ness of some of its funds. And Bloomberg did kind of a mini expose on MSCI, which, by the way, controls 40 percent of the ESG ratings market, saying that ES MSCI was kind of playing fast and loose with the ratings, giving McDonald's, for example, uh, an ESG ratings boost, not because it did so much better, but because they just removed emissions as a consideration and instead credited McDonald's for adding some recycling bins in the UK and France, which McDonald's was likely going to have to do anyway uh, under coming law changes. So the real question is, does ESG have merit or has the investing industry just come in and hijacked it as a marketing opportunity? Well, I have a guest. I have a guest. Speaking of millennials, my former analyst, Xiaoping Wang, is the only millennial who I could find who is not into ESG investing. So for that reason, she is here with me today. Xiaoping, welcome. Hello, James. Hello, everyone. Yeah, I am skeptic, uh, skeptical to ESG investing, and here's, here am I to explain why. Xiaoping the skeptic. Xiaoping the skeptic. So, so Xiaoping, uh, you, you also told me uh, earlier that you don't own Tesla. So oh. you, you don't like ESG, or you're skeptical of ESG. You don't own Tesla shares, and... And you don't even eat avocado toast, you told me. In my mind, those were the three hallmarks of being a millennial. So you were definitely uh, a rule breaker. You were your own thing. Um, so, and, and probably a good guest here. So, so in a nutshell, why are you so skeptical of ESG? Well, just to clarify, I'm not against the concept of making the world better by investing. I'm, just, I'm glad you don't. Okay, by investing, I hope you're not invest. Hope you're not against making the world better generally, but but by investing, that's still relevant. Yes. Yeah, but I'm just skeptical to ESG because you, if you think about it, what exactly is ESG? Like maybe people would say that any kind of strategy that promises to bring the positive social changes would be ESG, but is this is there an, any like absolute standards? Or not at all, right? Not at all. That's the problem. Not yeah. At all. Yeah, so if you look at the Russia's, uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, you can see that the governments of uh, Europe are changing their environmental goals by turning to fossil fuels, which they really hate. 
to reduce the dependence on Russian gas, like in order to fulfill their ethical goals. So, like, I personally think that this war is kind of like a wake up call for the world of ESG because there's this case where the E and the S and the G against one another. So, which one is more important, James? Yeah, and, and you're right. They, they hated fossil fuels the day before Russia invaded Ukraine, and they hated defense stocks. Defense shares were, were traditionally the, the outcast of the ESG world. And now suddenly Citigroup and you know, some EU commission on something, they're both considering whether defense companies should be considered ESG companies now that suddenly they benefit them, right? And I, I do smell a bit of hypocrisy. Uh, I mean, and, uh, yes, arguably, there's, a, there's an argument to be made that these, these types of companies now are protectors of human rights in a way that they weren't before. And human rights is important to ESG, but it also kind of brings up the circular notion or the complex notion that we live in an interconnected world and and there are so many causes and there's so much interplay, it's, it's really hard to, to, to say what's what. And I think the ratings agencies, the ESG ratings agencies, by the way, ESG people are, are I mean, you can look and say, all right, this company makes clean energy, this is good, this company makes um, cigarettes, that's bad. But beyond the very basic level, most people are dependent on ratings agencies who really do the deep due diligence, and there are 100 or 160, I forgot. There's some big number of them. There's very little consensus on what is what should deserve a good rating. Uh, and then we have companies like Tesla, which makes electric vehicles. It's, it's leading the world into EVs, got kicked out of the S&P ESG index, and British American Tobacco, which makes a product that kills people or accelerates their death, uh, is a top three stock in, in, in the UK for ESG, uh, which sounds just totally weird. Now, I know you, you could dig down and say, all right, well, if we break Tesla into categories or BAT into categories, they, you know, maybe BAT is great on, on clean water, on water usage, on renewable energy, on, on some human rights stuff. They give a lot of money to charity and they're trying to steer their business in a better direction. That's great. I'm, I'm for that. But does it compensate? Does it compensate for the overall damage they do to society? Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But but it's fair that I think many people are questioning this now. Yeah, you're right. Like, um, the thank you. I love this, this. Every guy loves to hear those two words. You're right. Or three contraction. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. Yes, you felt heavily depends on the third party rating, but they're mostly unregulated. So various ESG rating uh, providers, they have different methodologies, and this reflected in the low levels of correlations between the rating they provide. So the uh, recently, uh, the MIT research found that the correlations between six major ESG rating agencies are just like, between to be 0.61. And if you look at the three largest... I can see you thinking about that as you're, you're searching for that number in your mind. But 0.61, yeah. if you're not interested, that's, that's a super, super... That's basically no correlation. It's yeah. basically no correlation. Mm -hmm. So, and, and if you just look at the three largest credit rating agencies, they are correlated between the 0.94 and 0.96 on their debt rating. So this divergence not only creates the confusions uh, for the sustainable investors, but also they just uh, stop the company's uh, motivations to improve their ESG performance because they don't know which aspect they should focus on. That's a fair point. You know, you got a, a lot of moving targets. And, and I want to say something, too. I've gone to some ESG conferences back when it was SRI, Socially Responsible Investing. It's had a lot of names over the years. There are a lot of people 
in this industry who really do care, especially early on. They want to make a difference. And I think the the ESG investors really do care also. Uh, and that's all wonderful. I think the, the problem is now it's gotten so diluted. The waters are so muddied by all these companies piling in and saying, oh, no, this is ESG, this is ESG. Well, nobody knows. And eventually kind of everything becomes ESG and it's too squishy to have real meaning anymore. Um, I'm going to ask you a question in a second. If, if policy, maker, policy is more important than, than, than company effects, I think to look for the like company benefits of ESG, we could look. Uh, Engine One, for example, is a small company that, that, that made ExxonMobil uh, do some more climate friendly. It's a hedge fund. It lobbied and got BlackRock on its side and, and kind of pushed ExxonMobil into doing some more climate friendly things, which would seem like a success. Intel, which obviously we know makes semiconductors, microprocessors, they looked at Africa and said there's a lot of uh, problems around these conflict minerals, uh, tin, tantalum, and lead that go into to, to what we make. Uh, the, the governments there are incapable of solving the problem. So let's make – and the problem was these, these child warriors, you know, the, these warlords would control these mines and, and would equip these kids with guns and, and sometimes get them hooked on drugs, and they would be shooting each other. It's a terrible situation. And so Intel said, look, we're going to blaze the trail ourselves and set, the, set an industry standard – and I was at Motley Fool at the time, and we had a lot of calls with Intel because this was something we were interested in. They took a lot of time with us, and I, I think they meant it. It was not just a greenwashing thing. Uh, and, and so that's a success story. But that may be the exception, you know, because for, for every Intel, there are probably dozens and dozens or hundreds of, of companies that say, you yeah, know, I could just call myself ESG, and, and everybody's going to like me. There's, there's a premium. Um, in fact, as you were talking about the ESG ratings and the no correlation, I mean, you and I, you and I could have James and, and Xiaoping ESG ratings company. Uh, it, it seems like we just need to jump in and, and, and start rating, and, and there we go, right? I mean, you always got people coming into a new industry trying to capitalize on that demand, whether it's the 2,000-something car companies that were around in the 1930s, uh, the, the hundreds or, or more than 1,000 e-commerce companies in the 90s, or the 17,000 cryptocurrency ICOs in the 2017, and the, the, then the number drastically shrunk. I mean, that's how things move in industries. You've got a whole bunch in the beginning, and it converges on one or two winners. Uh, the question, will there be any winning standards for ESG, the SEC, uh, European regulators, and probably regulators elsewhere are trying to tighten the standards. Um, do you think they're going to succeed? Oh, well, I, would, I wouldn't say that they can't succeed, but I'm skeptical. You don't sound very optimistic by, by the tone of your answer. Yeah, I think there's still a long way to go. Like previously, uh, the EU has its own standard, but uh, apparently there's holes that like people can't um, can uh, take advantage of it to to do the greenwashing, for example the DWS and yeah. So uh, I think there's still a long way to get to go, but like maybe it's not that easy. I, ESG is the Swiss cheese of investing. It comes with a lot of holes, uh, and I agree with you. It's not that easy. I don't. I, I want to like ESG so badly. I really do. Uh, I'm not giving up totally, but I, I'm mostly giving up. And, and Xiaoping, I'm just going to introduce our next segment because I think it's relevant. You know, there are ESG funds and there are funds that they get criticized, you know, for, for, because they look very non-ESG from the outset. But they look for companies, generally maybe bad companies that are ESG offenders that are trying to get better. So in other words, rather than rewarding the absolute ESGness of a company, they reward the change. 
the, the delta, in other words. Uh, a bad company being less bad might be better for the world and, and actually better for your portfolio's performance than a good company just staying good or becoming a little bit better. So in our next segment, we're going to dive right into that. Uh, but for now, Xiaoping, thanks for coming on. And, and to you at home, thanks for watching this part. Thank you. My guest today is Roger Mortimer a portfolio manager at CraneShares, an ETF company, and Roger specifically manages the actively managed Global Carbon Transformation ETF. Uh, Roger, or actually funds that Roger has managed in the past, I should say, have received three Morningstar five-star ratings. And again, the, the rating is for the, the fund, not the manager, but it's almost like a, a Michelin star, basically, in the fund management world. It's, it's a big honor. Uh, it's certainly a big honor for me to have him here. Uh, he is not only a fund manager, but he's also a Canadian, which means he's guaranteed, basically guaranteed to be nice and polite. I have never met, I have never met a Canadian who I have not liked. So Roger, with that, uh, welcome. Thank you very much, James. I'll, I'll do my best. No, any relation, I was Googling Roger Mortimer, any relation, because I'm nosy, any relation to the, about a thousand years ago, there was a, a Roger Mortimer who uh, basically led England very briefly and was executed by hanging, uh, quite a character, any relation to your knowledge to this Roger Mortimer? Uh, actually, uh, yes, I was born in England and I was named after him. Uh, Interesting. Somewhat dubious honor, perhaps. Huh. Well, it's, it's history, right? Um, all right. So let's get down to business. Uh Canadians are, are polite. Maybe I shouldn't be so polite with this correct question. I'll be direct. Is ESG investing crap? Is it nonsense or does it have merit? Well, you know, it's obviously a very topical question. ESG funds have become a very large proportion of the total assets under management and continue to take a very large share of fund flows, particularly retail fund flows. And I I think we look at it a couple of different ways. So one way of looking at it is if all funds are ESG, then ESG in itself loses meaning to some degree, right? So I think we're through the first phase of ESG adoption where investors are going to start scrutinizing more carefully what these funds are doing for them and not buying them simply because of the, the, the labeling. And what we know about ESG uh, funds is that Static ESG scores are not indicative of financial returns. Buying a high-scoring ESG fund does not, uh, the academic research suggests, provide any indication as to how well that fund is going to do versus other funds. But the area where there is the um, greatest body of research around alpha generation from ESG focuses on ESG improvement that buying low-scoring ESG companies or buying rate of ESG improvement is indicative of financial returns. And, so and just to jump in, alpha, alpha for the financially new people is, is basically kind of like the portion of a return that's almost too good to be true in a risk-adjusted sense, according to traditional financial theory. So you want alpha, alpha is good. Yeah, yeah. And so, sorry, James, I, I apologize for expressing it in, in such a, a technical way. But the, the gist of that is, Buying a company because it has a high ESG score doesn't tell you a lot about the financial return that you're going to receive, but buying a company that has improving ESG scoring, there's quite a bit of academic research suggesting that that can deliver outperformance. And, and that was my next question, or leading up to my next question. You run a transformation fund. A lot of people would look at that or, or look at probably some of the shares that you own and say, oh, this seems ridiculous. These aren't ESG companies. These are bad companies. Can you walk us through then why, not just from an alpha perspective, but from a making the world better sense, a transformation fund could make sense and is not as ridiculous as some people think. 
Yeah, so I mean, if we, if, we, if we go back to this point of improvement versus static scoring, ESG is inherently backward looking. You're looking at what somebody did previously and using that as a basis to buy the stock going forward. If you were focused on ESG improvement, you might not be as concerned about how a company scored in absolute terms in the past. That might not be your primary uh, focal point. Um, our focus is on climate, and we, and we think that climate is a tremendous opportunity. Climate, climate so the change E, not the S and the G, just the E, basically. We're just interested in the E, yeah. Um, and so climate change is going to be the biggest theme for the, for the rest of our lives, right? This, this is going to dominate uh, humanity's awareness as, as we move forward here. And that's because CO2 emissions in the upper atmosphere are already at a level where they are starting to affect uh, global temperatures. And even when the economy stopped in 2020 with COVID, CO2 emissions continued to grow. So this is now a base effect that is so large that's largely independent of the economy. And what that means is that climate change continues to advance irrespective of what the Fed does or what's happening in Europe or the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Climate change is a slow moving phenomenon that continues to advance. And policymakers believe this. It doesn't really matter whether you or I think that the world is getting hotter. What matters is that scientific consensus around this area is very strong and policymakers believe that this is a problem. And so what, what is interesting is that there are really kind of three drivers behind this decarbonization idea. Um, and governments are really starting to push this activity and companies are recognizing that there's a tremendous opportunity here. And those companies that are emerging as the leaders are starting to be sought out by investors. And these are companies where their ESG scoring can improve and this is a, this is a money-making strategy. Um, and so if you want to invest in climate change and you want to invest in resolving the issues that relate to carbon emissions, you really have to focus on the companies who are in this business today. You know, 80% um, of all of the energy we, we use today is fossil fuels. And to, to imagine that you're going to take what amounts to about 20% of the world's infrastructure and replace that with a startup company from Silicon Valley, uh, it's just too difficult to do. You have to start, you have to invest in the problem. And, and what, what is interesting is that ESG scoring improvement argument allows you the ability to invest in those companies that sit in the middle of the problem that nobody likes, but companies that are aggressively allocating capital towards transformation businesses. And you've actually seen a number of examples of this recently. I mean, even, even yesterday, Shell, one of the world's largest oil companies, provided a trading update that showed that their refining profits are higher than ever. And they also sanctioned the, the construction of the largest green hydrogen project in Europe yesterday. And in, in the last couple of weeks, you've had British Petroleum step in to buy a 40% stake in the largest renewable green hydrogen development project in the world, which is in Australia. Uh, and Total made a major commitment in India. And what, what you're seeing is that these big companies bring all kinds of skills to the table here. They bring big balance sheets, they bring access to capital, they bring knowledge in these areas. And other people are preparing the opportunity and then they are arriving and putting in the capital to make these things happen. And what you'll see over time is that the green element within these dirty companies becomes a bigger and bigger piece of what they do and people start to look at them differently. And, and, and maybe could I, could I give you sort of a, an, an example of what, of what that looks like? I would love a success story or an example, yeah. Sure, so our playbook, the, the, the model company for what we're doing is a Danish company called Ørsted. 
And Ersted is well recognized by um, uh, environmentally focused investors. It's been, it's been rated the world's most sustainable energy company three years in a row. Um, and Ersted actually seven years ago had a different name. It was called Dong Energy. It was a Danish oil and natural gas company. And they drilled for oil in the North Shore, uh, the North Sea off the coast of Denmark, very, very hostile environment. Um, they recognized that there was potential for offshore wind development in the same areas where they were already active. And they have all the infrastructure, they have marine fleets, they have the capabilities to operate in these difficult environments. They have all the supplier structures in place. And they started building offshore wind turbines. And what, once, when they started doing that, they realized a couple of things. They realized that investors liked the company better when it was a wind company than when it was an oil company. And they also realized that the wind business was actually a better business than the business they were already in. And when you think about it, a wind turbine doesn't have too many part, moving parts, but an offshore oil derrick has hundreds of thousands of moving parts. And so they gravitated towards a business that was more profitable and investors liked it better. So they plowed more and more of their money into wind instead of oil, and then they sold the oil business and they changed the name. And the company transformed itself from this completely nondescript Danish oil company to the world's most sustainable energy company. And the price earnings multiple tripled. It became a company that investors couldn't get enough of. And we think this playbook of dirty company that has all of the advantages of scale, technology, existing customer relationships, sitting in the right geography, they're extremely well positioned to go into these businesses. And what you're going to see is that as these companies allocate more and more of their investment capital in the new business, investors will start to see them as something different than what they were before. And uh, so if I could just give you one more real, real time example. So uh, Germany is the epicenter of the European energy crisis that has resulted from uh, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Germany imports almost all of its energy. It's only 2% of the economy, but they can't run the economy without it. And Germany has suddenly got a huge wake-up call that buying all, their, all the energy they need to run their country from one supplier is not a good idea. And so they're scrambling as fast as they can to build their own energy production capacity, and that'll be renewable, renewable generation. RWE is a German utility, big German coal-fired utility. Germany's got lots of coal. And RWE is going to triple the size of the company, triple its capacity over the next eight years, and it's all, all solar and wind generation. It's all renewable generation. And RWE also has a, an activist investor in the company who's going to force them to divest the coal. So RWE is going to go through the Orsted playbook. Today it looks like a coal-fired generator that nobody wants, but all of its capital spendings are building, uh, plans are building renewable. And when it comes out the other side, it's going to look like a renewable company. Now, this company trades at five times enterprise value to EBITDA. It's a, a measure of valuation, whereas renewable energy companies trade at 15 to 20 times. So this thing trades at a third of what the peers that it is going to look like trades at. And it'll take eight years to get there. But we think that as investors focus on this, you'll get rewarded for owning it much, much sooner. And so uh, our playbook is you want to allocate capital to the companies in the middle of the problem where the management can see that their existing business model is not sustainable and they're allocating capital towards uh, a growth model that is in renewable. And those seem like Cinderella stories, the best of both worlds, right? Making more money and, and helping the environment more. One question though, uh, what's the ratio of, of wheat to chaff? In other words, for every RWE, I would assume that there are many companies that either 
aspire to be an RWE or, or you know, aspire to make that transition, but fail somewhere along the way, or companies that you know may try some greenwashing just because they know that higher multiple is out there, uh, and 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 they want to. It's easier to try to look like something to actually be that thing. Are there are a lot of frauds, and what kind of effort do you have to do to sift those out? I um. I think the way to think about it, James, is there are very big market factors encouraging this to happen. So, so governments are using policy to force change. They are imposing carbon taxes, which make the economics of your old behavior not as attractive anymore and make the relative economics of the new behavior much more attractive. And companies respond to those. Um, the investment community is really pushing on this. The biggest investors in the world think this should happen. And what's really interesting is that for the first time ever, a social objective and a financial objective are aligned. You can actually imagine that you could actually have an extremely effective investment strategy that also has tremendous impact. And so while there may be, um, there may be bad actors within this universe, we are focused on the companies that have clarity of leadership and evidence of the capital being spent in the right areas. And what we think is going to happen is that as more and more investors see that this Orsted playbook is a winning playbook, more and more corporate leaders will start gravitating to this because the corporate leader who manages the winning company in the sector is going to have a valuation much higher than the, uh, the company that doesn't do this. And this is really a financially motivated strategy. This is this is a way of manufacturing financial returns by changing the business of the company from something that's inherently unsustainable to something that has forward growth. And um, I, I'm not going to judge whether the CEO is doing it for a social reason or a financial reason. We are really focused on is the activity occurring and are we being rewarded for that activity? Roger, thank you very much for, for joining us. It was informative to me and I believe it was informative for those watching. Thanks again. Thanks very much, James. Screening for ESG is tough, James, but our discussion of this topic is important. This is the future. More and more people know that today, and we have to start somewhere. From feedback we've received, many believe it isn't crystal clear where to start. So I want to share with you a screen about a component of ESG, renewable energy companies. Many say these companies are more focused on the E portion of ESG, environmental. Renewable energy comes from sources that are always being replenished, and it's critical to our future. As background, the market hasn't been working for stock buyers thus far this year. As such, I've been talking a lot about creating wish lists in my newsletter, Follow the Money. I shared one last week here on the Early Advantage and I've got another one for you now. The FTSE index has held up well compared to many global indices, but it's still down more than 2.5% price-wise this year through 8 July. Its total return is still negative half percent if you include dividends. Compare that to total returns of negative 17.5% and negative 25% for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100 respectively. So the FTSE has outperformed, but all of these indices are still down. Couple that with the loss of purchasing power we've all experienced from inflation, and the results are even worse. So where should we look? Well, 
we know that renewable energy is part of our future, right? This chart shows the increase in renewable energy as a percentage of total consumption in the U.S. The light blue is hydroelectric power, orange is nuclear, and green is other renewables, including biofuels, geothermal, solar, and wind. You can see the growth in renewables as a percentage of the total. Even with that, though, even though we know renewables are part of the future, these stocks have been down, too. The Invesco Wilder Hill Clean Energy ETF, ticker PBW, is a $1.1 billion clean energy fund that owns U.S.-listed stocks in the clean energy sector. It has outperformed the index it tracks, but it's still down 30% so far this year. That said, it makes sense to expect many of these shares will return. So let's generate a renewables-focused wish list. To generate my wish list, I screen for stocks that meet my criteria. I normally recommend stocks in the UK, the US, or Canada, so that's where I looked. I screened for renewable stocks, meaning I only looked for common stocks that had the word renewable in their name or company description. You might think that's too simple, but remember, as we mentioned last week, a wish list is a starting point. We are looking for names that fit our general criteria, then we will drill down. When our knowledge of the space grows, we can expand or limit our criteria, as the case may be. I also look for stocks with a minimum market cap. After I generated that list, I got even more specific. I first filtered these names by sector, in this case, utilities. I'm looking for the stocks that make money in some way from the generation of renewable power. I also look for stocks that are seeing sales growth. That reduced my wish list to four names. To be clear, this is just a starting point. They may still have other hair or warts that make them uninvestable. At first glance, for example, Altius Renewable Royalties looks funny. It appears to have huge revenue growth, 1,532% last quarter versus the previous year's quarter. But this number is misleading. It's actually an interest income number. It's an example of why we drill down. But when I did so, I confirmed ARR is growing. You see, it's a different kind of utility. It has royalties on certain renewable power generating assets, and it earns more as those assets generate more power. It owns 50% of a joint venture that it co-manages with Apollo Global Management, a huge global investment firm, and it has no debt. We own a royalty company in our Follow the Money newsletter, so this concept is very intriguing to me. I'll be learning more about ARR. You can see LOMA Capital, ticker ELLO in the States, and this stock also trades in Tel Aviv, has solid revenue growth. ELLO operates renewable, power-generating assets in Israel and Europe, and it's building more. The third name, Sunova Energy, Nova on the New York Stock Exchange is primarily a residential solar company with more than 200,000 customers. Nova is growing, but it's spending a lot of money to do so. When doing your due diligence on this one, make sure you assess these negative cash flows. Its stock has fallen the most from its 52-week high. The fourth name 
is Altus Power Amps on the NASDAQ. It's working to create a clean electrification system. Its major sponsors include Mega Investor, the Blackstone Group, and real estate manager CBRE Group. That's saying something. These companies are the best at what they do. Amps is worth a look. And finally, the Drax Group from Selby, DRX on the LSE, it also came up in my search. It isn't on this list because its revenue growth wasn't quite as strong as the other names, but I recommend looking into it as well. Drax is focused on renewable energy and the need to decarbonize globally and in the UK. So that's the list. FYI, I generated this screen using Bloomberg, but there are other screeners out there as well. For example, Finviz, TradingView, Zaxx, Yahoo Finance, among others. And your online broker likely offers one as well. Finally, and I feel like a broken record, you'll have to do more work. But you've heard a lot about ESG and not, a, not as much about how to profit from it. So hopefully this quick video gives you an idea of a way to do so. I don't know if any of these ideas will officially become recommendations in my letter, but I wanted to show you how you can think about generating a wish list. If you like this video, let us know, and we can create more using different assumptions. Thank you.